0: Hello, and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight is on my longtime friend, Matt Adele. Matt has been immersed in the digital music business since it began, with key roles in pioneering companies including Music Now, Napster, and Beatport. Matt joined me to discuss the launch of his latest venture, OnNow.tv. But as you'll see, you can't keep a good tour down. Our discussion veered into various directions, all of which I hope you enjoy as much as I did. So usually I start uh, at the beginning with people, but I think I want to, you know, just because um, we're such offbeat characters. Now let me start at the end. Tell me about the business that you have either just launched or in the process of launching.
1: Well, it's, it's just launched. It's onnow.tv. It is a uh, uh, discover, share, and promote platform for live streams. <laughs> uh, we are not a live streamer. Uh, rather, we're a, a guide and promotion engine to any place A host or creator might want to be streaming Uh, and then for viewers we're a place where they can uh, discover and manage what they want to watch in the live streaming world across all those disparate places Uh, what happened was I was home quarantined like everybody else and I I am a gamer so I'm, I'm you know I'm familiar with twitch as a as a gaming platform and the other live streaming platforms but I'm not on social media all day, every day. And I was reading about live streams after they had happened that I had missed that sounded like I would really have liked to have heard them or seen them. And additionally, I was sometimes reading about them before they happened. And because live streaming wasn't really part of my entertainment workflow, uh, I was missing them. So I, I took a look at the market and realized how fragmented it was and that this, a middle layer of defragmentation seemed really valuable to livestream creators as well as to fans. And so that's what we tried to build. I was really fortunate that within days of beginning to test my thesis about this, I met some other folks here in LA who had a similar vision and we combined our efforts and we're a team of four people moving full steam ahead now. Um, One week ago, we launched our MVP, uh, our minimum viable product on the host side. It's a simple platform that allows hosts to uh, build a a page uh, about their live stream. It takes them about three minutes to make it. And then they can share that page on their socials. And there's technology embedded in the page that allows people to uh, sign up for notifications and make sure they know exactly when and where to go leading up to the launch of the live stream, including one that's just five minutes before. And we're seeing that notification itself, which seems so simple, be incredibly valuable to both the streamer and the viewer because the viewer doesn't forget. They have an opportunity. It's a link that takes them directly to the platform. We're not trying to uh, get in the middle of that experience at all. And then we're seeing on the, for the streamers that they're seeing at least a 50% uptick in the number of tune-ins because of this notification system.
0: That's amazing. Were there existing directories and were there integrations that you've done with data sources? Or is this all the creators on, you know, is this now an outreach initiative to creators to get them to to create the pages?
1: We're building from both sides of the network, but right now it's us putting stuff in uh, to make sure that we have a great inventory and discovery uh, for our viewers. And it's the hosts putting stuff in. There are APIs for some of the live platforms, but not all of them. And we're ingesting them now and figuring out what can be, you know, how sense can be made of that. But there's, there's millions of data points uh, and we don't want to make the experience uh, worse for anyone. So right now we're pulling in that data and figuring it out. The simplest way to think of our MVP feature set is that we are Eventbrite 100% customized for the needs of a live streamer, which is very different than the needs of a host of a physical event.
0: Yeah. Are you comfortable at all talking about, you know, you specifically used Eventbrite as the example, as opposed to say song kick. Well, one reason is
1: we're not music focused. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. That's fair. uh, Music is important and really excites me, obviously. And we've seen really interesting stuff happening in music, but there's also really cool stuff happening in health and fitness and wellness on the live streaming front. And I have a side hustle in the world of uh, stand-up comedy. I'm not a comic, but my wife and I own a stand-up comedy record label. And we've seen a lot of stand-up comics gravitating towards Zoom as well. So we, we want to be where you can discover something that covers any of your interests and all of your interests.
0: So in this world where a lot of um, wellness classes and things of that nature have moved online would those be listed in your discovery engine or like, is there, a, um, can you talk a little bit about sort of the stratification of types of events? Is it, is it, sure. if it's live streamed, it's in there or are there. Yeah. Thresholds? If it's,
1: if it's live, we want it. And uh, there's uh, to us live means that everyone who's watching and listening is watching and listening to the same thing at the same time together. We're all about togetherness. And so if the Prince's estate wanted to show a classic pr- Prince concert that obviously isn't technically live because he's no longer with us, uh, but, you know, that, thing's, that stream starts at 8 o'clock and it's live and it goes until it ends and everyone who's watching is watching together, that's what we think live is about. It's about togetherness. Frequently the content itself is live, but that's not necessary. What we really mean by live is everyone is experiencing the same thing together. Yeah sort of a, a synchronous viewing event. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And, um, what about gated events? Um, you know, what are you doing around registration, ticket sales? Are, are you simply
1: a directory or? We do not do ticketing. Uh, currently right now, the people who want to list their live streams can put links to their ticketing platform. Although ticketed events Maybe uh, uh, common among the more popular. There are millions of live streams every day that are, are not ticketed or gated in any way. Uh, so there's a lot of great stuff out there that isn't gated. Uh, but we want to be there to support the live stream hosts, the live stream creators, with however they want to do their live stream. So I look forward to integrating other uh, solutions for that. But we really don't, we really want to remain neutral to the platform that someone is using to live stream and of course in some cases those platforms are going to want to be the ticketing body our goal is to just make it as easy as possible for people to come together while these live streams are happening and we want to get in the way as little as possible
0: it's really amazing to think about um, the very tangible innovation coming out of the, the COVID situation
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: that's fantastic Can you tell me a little bit about um, your team? You said there's four of you. What's sort of the division of labor or everybody's superpower?
1: So my co-founders are are three guys who knew each other uh, before the project and had done some stuff together before. Uh, All three of them are serial entrepreneurs. Uh, Terrence Scoville is our developer, and he is a uh, private corporate uh, website builder uh, for big brands. And uh, Stefan Jacobs is our COO and uh, a co-founder. And Stefan is a well-known musician. Um, uh, One of the names he records under is Bossa B-O-S-A. And he he really is driving the day-to-day operations of the business. He's also our CPO. Uh, So he's helping make sure that we're prioritizing uh, everything we need to do. There's always more ideas than resources. And Henry Strange, the other co-founder, is a great guy. He's a musician. He owns a company called Strange Electronics that builds highly customized software and hardware for big stadium style music and audio events. So everyone's been an entrepreneur. I neglected to mention Stefan had a business called Sessio that uh, eventually had a soft landing, but had been sort of Airbnb for home recording studios, a really great idea. Wow. And so Henry's focused on marketing. Stefan is our COO and focused on product definition. He also does some QA and some development. And then we have Terrence uh, handling development. And I am trying to help drive strategy from the highest level, trusting the team to deliver on those values. And I'm also focused on fundraising right now.
0: Yeah. Okay. And it sounds like truly in the spirit of a four person team, it's not, it's not so much you all sit in separate silos. It's, uh, there's, there does sound like there's some overlap, but I can't imagine you stay out of product discussions.
1: No, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely in those product discussions, but it has been really nice to be able to sort of trust the agile development process and, and trust my colleagues uh, that, uh, to the point where you don't are you – know, if the thing you want, the feature you want is number three – yeah on the list and you wish it was number 1 you know why get stressed about that because you trust your colleagues and one's going to get done and two's going to get done and then three's going to get done and uh so I've been in those conversations but the fact of the matter is the value we want to create is very straightforward and now that we have users a week in it's really exciting to just be able to look at analytics and see what we're trying to drive and prioritize you know based on math instead of you know gut yes.
0: yeah do you call the um, phase you're in right now? Like, is it a soft launch? Is it a beta? What, what's your go to market on the consumer side?
1: We haven't called it a beta. It's just out, you know, we wanted to get this value into people's hands as quickly as possible. And uh, as I mentioned before, the MVP was really focused on creating value for the host. And we say host cause it might be a, uh, the actual talent putting on the live stream, but we've also seen, as I'm sure you know, a lot of the biggest channels in live streaming are actually brand-based, Insomniac, yeah. Mad Decent, you know, where they're having different performers come in over a scheduled period of time. That's also something we saw as a real need in the market, which is you know, Diplo might have his own live stream, which is easy to find, but he might appear in other people's live streams. And how is it, as a fan of Diplo, how do you find that? We want to make that you know, much easier. Um, but now I've lost the thread of what I was talking about.
0: <laughs> That's all right. You're uh, you're you're solving um you're solving sort of an, an age-old problem around discoverability, um, but also I think the reminder notification piece, like you said at the beginning, is super powerful. Um it's one thing to know that there's a live stream Thursday night at eight o'clock, um, but it's another thing to actually have the workflow um and the personal workflow to actually go do it.
1: Yeah, and we, so we've created also uh, a watch, the onnow.tv watch list, uh, where a user can see the schedule of everything they've added to their watch list coming up that they may want to view. Um, so it's also not a one and done. We're really hoping that onnow.tv can become part of people's, and it's a terrible word, but we're talking you know business, you know, entertainment workflow. You know, there's got to yeah. be a better word for it, but, but you know what I mean. Yeah.
0: You're letting people sort of make their personalized TV guide. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, have you given much thought or do you have a vision yet around monetization or revenue?
1: Uh, I have. I don't want to do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, it, makes, uh, it makes it a lot easier. <laughs> it does. We, we have a very big, what we believe to be a very big revenue strategy that does not involve us charging uh, hosts or viewers uh, and we'll get to that sometime next year but we are laser focused currently on connecting these two constituents who are having such a hard time finding each other in the marketplace right now which is the hosts and the, and the viewers and we believe this is a global problem this isn't just you know um, a challenge for American users uh, so we are very much focused on really honing in that very very tight value then we're gonna scale that value to everyone on the planet. Then we can worry about how to make money. I mean, the good news is because we're not the streamer, uh, save as a business, bandwidth isn't that expensive. We're not licensing content. Um, We think other people are always gonna be much better at that. We just wanna be the glue that takes this fragmented market, makes it seem like one experience for users. And I wanna do that globally before we begin to attack uh revenue models
0: yeah i mean it's very easy to think about um follow-on product or follow-on capabilities just from a distribution point of view that you can provide custom feeds to different you know whether it's into social channels or or uh, vertical content genre websites like there's a there's a really powerful opportunity to um, to, to to deliver new reach Yes.
1: New reach for those people. And, and, and I think our revenue opportunities in the future, I would like to be about driving more revenue to our constituents as well. That's great. That's great. Um, I'm being a little secretive about our monetization plans. Yeah, Um, no, please. That's,
0: I totally get it. You're a weekend. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. All right. So something I I wanted to pivot to is, uh, you talked about your side hustle. Um, Mm -hmm. who owns, who owns a, a comedy record label in 2020? Tell me, Tell me about
1: that and, uh, and where it fits in your, uh, your personal ecosystem. Sure. So my wife is an actress and comedian. Am I allowed to swear on this? Oh, yeah. Please. Uh, You're encouraged. She may have generated about a billion views. I shit you not. Over the last two years, she wrote and stars in a viral video called Mind Your Own Fucking Business which is a reminder to white people to stop calling the police on black people. And it, it, uh, it went viral, and it's basically stayed viral for two years because, sadly, that's an evergreen topic. Yeah. And uh, in addition to that, we, uh, we built a live comedy business here in Los Angeles. Uh, with her producing, we did 18 events over the last year and a half and of stand-up comedy you know with a variety of comics and then the quarantine happened and we pivoted immediately to comedy albums and podcasts Uh, we had already done one album you know there's surprisingly little comedy albums on the streaming services people just don't make them anymore um and but we were experiencing people doing great sets and i know how to get i know i mean you know i know you know it's hard to you know, have a hit record, but it's not hard to get a record up, you know. And uh, so we, we wanted to help some comics here in L.A. that we love get their records out. So we have three releases, uh, three albums out, out now. We're actually in the pre-order phase of um, Joseph Schless's first album with us. His album is called Soliciting Dick Picks. And uh, the live show included some large display of uh, dicks and him reviewing them. <laughs> and, uh, so we're in pre-order phase with that. And we have his album coming out at the end of gay pride month. And, uh, so it's been really fun. My wife actually is, was downstairs before this. We made sure we weren't doing it at the same time recording a comedy podcast. Oh,
0: amazing. Talk to me a little bit about, um, why you think there are not comedy albums. Does, I mean, I'll give you a little thesis on my end and maybe you could have a better, you could have a better take it seems like as in so many other businesses, there's a have and have not. So Mm -hmm. if you're, if you, once you hit a certain threshold as a comedian, the real money is putting aside, even touring, you know, you're shooting for a broadcast or a streaming comedy special. Like that's relatively low production. It's a great business. And then on the other end, I guess there's the the endless inventory of podcasts. Mm -hmm. So, did it just, did it suck the air out of the room for the viability of comedy albums? Or was there a perception that there was no place for comedy albums? Because I think people of our generation, like we grew up on.
1: Yeah, I mean, I grew, I, you know, I grew up on comedy albums. I love comedy albums. And, you know, uh, still to this day, I like to, I'll, whenever hipster people ask me what my favorite kind of music is, I'd like to admit to them quite truthfully that comedy rock, like Flight of the Concords, is really my favorite genre of music. But I, I think, I think, I actually think what it became was the nature of the stand-up specials. So the specials used to be broadcast once, right? When we were growing up, and then if you wanted to rehear the jokes, you had to have the album. There was no other, you know, way. And uh, now that on-demand television streaming has become the platform everyone wants to get a special. Everyone wants a Netflix special, right? It's permanently available there. And so it's not, and Netflix is paying to produce those things. And it's not really in Netflix's best interest to put up an audio version on Spotify. So, you know, Netflix, it works because it's a walled garden, right? You have to pay to get that content. And so I think so. And then podcast, I think is a very different format. Like com- comedians do podcasts, but they don't really do their stand up, you know, on the podcasts. And so I, I thought that there was this, this opportunity to, to find some middle ground where we had these great comics that weren't going to get a Netflix special yet. And perhaps doing an album, which we think is, you know, feels more tangible than a podcast would be a great intermediate step to help comics get to that next level.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you do physical
1: product? Not yet. Not yet. I think if I, I think if I had to do this one over again, I might've done a seven inch. (laughs)
0: not a 10 inch no no that's aspirational
1: (laughs) yeah exactly exactly
0: (laughs) so so early march hits and you're sort of in this comedy world um you start thinking about on now tv um what were you doing sort of i guess for lack of a better way to say it what were your plans for Uh, the second quarter of this year, um, during the first quarter? What were you thinking you were going to be
1: doing in 2020? I didn't know, honestly. Uh, I had, uh, around January, I ended almost a year of a consulting contract, consulting in the software for for musicians, you know, creation software uh, space. Uh, A lot of that business is moving from a permanent download business to a SaaS Subscription model, and I was helping some people, you know, evolve their business in in that direction. And I, I'm a hobbyist musician, making music on my computer. So, you know, the more time I can spend nerding out on that stuff, the better. And that actually went longer than it was scheduled. And as a result, I hit the quarantine with nothing on my plate. I mean, I am on the board of a few companies. I'm constantly advising new startups. I've got a couple of mentee young people. You know, I, I make myself available to but i didn't really i went into the quarantine without a strong sense of what i was going to spend the rest of the year doing every now and then heard about jobs you know and i was always willing to talk to people about it just as i was sort of resigning myself to using this time in a different way than i thought you know i went into the quarantine thinking like uh well i'll just do nothing this will be over soon you know i you know and in, instead i've i've re- i i started transitioning to doing different things like exercising, which I never got in the habit of doing. I'm 52 years old and exercise has never become a habit. I made it a habit, you know, during this time. So I thinking I wasn't going to be working. I focused on sort of, you know, life enhancement stuff. And then this happened and it just, it happened so fast. I mean, I I feel like I went from thinking about it uh, to incorporating in like five days. Yeah, it sounds it. Yeah.
0: What's really sort of striking to me is not only, you know, the idea itself and the timeliness of the idea itself, but the fact that it's so nice to be able to point to something positive and constructive that was directly tied to the events of the last several months. The the pandemic in a, um, in a perverse way has been very positively impactful for our business as well. Um, and it's, I find myself feeling very self-conscious about that. You know, it's hard knowing that there's so many people, you know, very tangibly suffering, whether it's our friends and colleagues in different parts of the business or, you know, folks
1: that quite frankly, we never come into contact with who we're not, are not visible. The whole time has been wave after wave of reminders of how fortunate I am. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it's great that you can, you can
0: internalize that.
1: Right. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, uh, and then more, more recently I'm reminded how fortunate I am that, uh, you know, uh, police, you know, don't assault me reminded of that too. So it's been, a, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a great time to go stand on the rafters and say, I'm the king of the world. Right. (laughs) Um, and, and it, and it shouldn't be, uh, but it, I'm learning from other people as well. I think it's worth remembering about our brother, our brothers and sisters who are black Americans that the trials and tribulations they faced for 400 years, didn't stop them from creating some of the most important music and art on the planet, you know, over that time. Uh, so we can, I think as we as humans can improve things and, and work on ourselves and still do great exciting things at the same time. Yeah.
0: Well, along those lines, there was a, um, there was an interview this weekend in the New York times magazine with John Stewart. Mm-hmm. And he said something, which I'll, I'll, I'll poorly paraphrase, but I'll get the sentiment right. He said, you know, um, after only about six or eight weeks, we had white people storming their Capitol buildings with guns, um, demanding their right to go back outside with no masks because they were bored and impatient. Um, um, And and, and they were oppressed by the government because they couldn't go outside and go wherever they want. Imagine 400 fucking years of that. Right. I know that was
1: a great interview with him.
0: That really was a great interview. It yeah. made, made me realize, um, you know, the voice he had. But also, I, I kind of like the mature version of him. I think he's a yes. bit more constructive now. You
1: know? Yes. Well, he, he is. And, and, I, and the, the mature him wouldn't have made the show he made, again, you know, in hindsight. I, well, I'm really glad you brought this up. I have to tell you that I read that article. And I started to write a Facebook post about it. And it became too long. And I thought, what the hell am I doing here? But uh, may I share with you what that interview made me think?
0: Please. Yeah.
1: So John Stewart, I remember, you know, the Trump was running for office as Stewart was, uh, you know, appearing less and less. Right. Uh, And I, I don't remember when the show ended, but I remember him saying about Trump supporters. And this was Trump supporters before the election. Right. I remember him saying, well, they can't all be racist. and. I knew then and I know now, he's wrong. They can all be racist. That's possible. I think Jon Stewart has a blind spot. Interestingly, I've seen it a couple of times in other friends who come from sort of a, a white indie punk rock background. Stewart was in punk rock bands. And then also sort of particular to the East Coast, which I'm not from, which is the, this belief that your racist friends aren't really racist that that, you know, um, and uh, he said something in that interview that I, I thought was also incorrect, which he said, he, and I know he meant it well, don't get me wrong. He is on the right side of history. I am a, you know, I will stand next to him any day. But he said he thought that we, whoever the we is, are focusing on the wrong issue and that it's not about what some individual cops are doing, but it's systemic. And I completely agree. The issues are systemic. But right now, or at least two weeks ago when the interview was done, and we're really facing the beginning of the the re-escalation of the Black Lives Matter movement, is it was our black brothers and sisters just asking us to get the cops to stop killing them. Um, That is what our brothers and sisters asked us to face and fight against. I don't think it's a good look for John Stewart to say, "Well, that's the wrong thing to be focused on," and I think it shows a blind spot that a lot of white Americans have, which is they just can't believe how racist so many people are. And you know, I just to guarantee you, our black brothers and sisters know exactly how racist all those other people are, uh, and there's a lot of them, and they're very racist.
0: Yeah, I, I, it's it's funny that you zero in on that part of the article because. Um, it was sort of in the last third or the last quarter of the interview where he got into this topic and it's, and it's the, it's really the only piece of the article that that sort of lost me. And I agree with you when he, he, he's, he's, I don't know if it's a generational thing cause he really isn't that much older, but he it's, there was, there's too much of a sense of like accommodation or conciliation. And, 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 and you're exactly right. This sort of, this idea that just because they support Trump, they aren't racist. I actually, I'm with you in that part. If he had said there, if he had tried to say, well, the racism comes from their cultural conditioning or the way they were brought up or some kind of ignorance, I would have, I would have been able to go a little bit further with him in his line of reasoning, but his idea that, um, I mean, he could have been right five years ago, but there's no way he's right now.
1: Well, I mean, just in the moment, you know, there's gonna come a time where we need to be focused on the systemic stuff as, uh, you know, as well. I think, I, I've seen this a lot lately because I think I'm further to the left and loud on this topic than, than many people uh, you know, that I grew up with. But I, I think it's incumbent upon us to see Trump fans, and I'll say fans right now, you know, the people who are big enough fans to have gone to the rally, I don't think it's fair to think they're stupid. I don't think it's fair to think that they've been brainwashed. They have agency. I, I think the most derogatory, you know, dismissive thing to do would be to treat, not treat them like they have agency. They've chosen to be racist. They're not misinformed. And as, if they're, as long as they're not children, it's not the responsibility of how they were brought up. They have agency. I think to presume otherwise is really the most classist way to think about it, that they're just dumb. dumb. I don't think that's fair. I don't think they're dumb.
0: Yeah. I, I think They're racist. I think that's extraordinarily fair. It's, it's, and, and, and to elaborate on that a little bit, it's, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's sort of demeaning to take somebody's agency away right. like that, but it also then denies them of responsibility for their yeah, actions. Yeah, exactly. Is, that's the most disgusting yeah. part of that line of, of thought. All that said, I, it was uh, what I thought was interesting, uh, so our, as a company, we watched um, over Zoom the other day. Um, as a company, we watched 13th
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and then had a, a listening circle afterwards where a bunch of us, you know, where everybody was able to sort of share their reactions. It seems to me that when that film came out a few years ago to now, I mean, the impact of that film just gets sort of It seeps in further and further. I don't think people were having the conversation about the historical legacy of slavery and the the uh, the real systemic uh, systems, I guess, (laughs) that were put in place since then uh, through the criminal justice system and the prison system and uh, uh, just the changes in language and coding. All those threads that were pulled together so masterfully in that film, but I say all that because um, the way he spoke about that in the interview made me realize: oh, these thoughts have finally like this is that film is now a mainstream view, like it's finally an accepted piece of historical context. That I think um, before that people had little pieces of it, but it was so masterfully pulled together and so impactful. And having John Harwoodman in it, and having Newt Gingrich in it, and uh, Grover Norquist, like it was, it was so
1: masterful. Yeah, it was really and well done.
0: It was really well done, and uh, and it's and it's and it's impacted mainstream liberal thought, which is great. So where did where did you grow up? I don't even know if I remember.
1: Well, so I'm I I was born in Rochester, New York, because my dad worked for Kodak. But by the time I was like three years old, we were in Evanston, Illinois. Uh, so if someone's from Chicago, I say I grew up in Evanston. If you're not from around there, I say I grew up in Chicago. Gotcha. Uh, to well, well,
0: how'd you get there? And don't please don't say by, by car.
1: How did I get to <laughs> Chicago?
0: How, how did you get from uh, uh, the roch to uh, Evanston?
1: Oh, well, my parents, my dad worked for Kodak for a gazillion years, and they moved him uh, around the country. My parents actually... Uh, likely conceived me in San Francisco during the summer of love uh, (laughs) when my dad was a Kodak salesman there. Then I was born and they were moved to Rochester. Then we got to Evanston. My dad worked in the Chicago Kodak, you know, corporate headquarters. And Evanston, Illinois is where Northwestern is, but it's also borders on Chicago. You know, it's the first suburb north of Chicago. So it, it had both access to the city. Some of it was fully suburban and very upscale, but a lot of overlap with the city. And I went to one of the most racially diverse public high schools in the country at the time as a result.
0: Oh, amazing. You know, if I have to think about a theme or a through thread um, in your career and your various endeavors, or at least your professional endeavors, it seems to be about advocacy and empowering uh, creatives, mm-hmm. helping them, you know, take control over their distribution, or monetize their career, or choose not to monetize their career, or just giving them optionality and control. And one, I wonder if you agree with that. And two, I wonder what what accounts for that. Where did you pick that? Where did you pick that spirit up from?
1: Well, I think if even if you count me starting uh, in the late '80s, early '90s, a uh, house an independent house music record label in Chicago even all the way back before I was sort of creating tools, that was about putting out my friend's records, right? I, I think part of it came from very early in life, very early in life being lucky enough to be around some really, really talented people. And um, although I am creative and artistic, I would never say I am an artist, uh, but something about my personality always led me to being around a lot of artists. And uh, I would end up falling in love with somebody's work and wanting to find a way to to share that, you know, it's how I, it's how I signed a couple of bands to wax tracks records. When I ran wax tracks back in the day, it's why I started the house label after that. Um, and then I think what expanded was, uh, the idea that it didn't only in the internet, I could scale these solutions and it didn't have to be about my taste. Mm. You know, you know, from a business perspective, first off, if I love it, 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 it you know, it, it's not likely to be top 10, let's just say. Um, and although usually trendy or big, big enough that there could be business to be had. My taste sat somewhere in the middle. I'm not, you know, Joe underground and first to uncover anything either, but, What I immediately liked about working in software and on the internet was this idea that I could spend time and energy uh, empowering anybody who wanted to come to the table. You know, there are challenges with that because, you know, eventually, you know, someone uploads a fucking Nazi techno record or something like that and you have to figure out how to deal with that. But I've really come to really enjoy being in the platforms business so that anybody, I guess in quotes, can come you know, amplify what they're, what they're doing to be creative. I also really believe that we need to separate creativity more from making a living for a lot of people. I think somehow we've gotten into this weird place where if you're talking about DJing or being a musician, it's, it's, it's talk about making it as opposed to the pure joy of doing it. Imagine if every golfer was asked every time they went to play golf, well, when are you going to win the tournament? No one does that. People understand that people love to play golf, right? And that that's okay. Uh, the act of it. And, and I believe the same thing around creativity. I think another theme of what I've been working on is making sure that even people who make art that is never going to pay their mortgage can find an audience. That, that kind of really interests me.
0: Yeah, that's a very interesting distinction in and in a line of inquiry. I, I've thought about that a lot in the last few years. Around the idea of I, I've thought about it with a slightly different slant, which is, and this is primarily within like a you know, a pop or rock music business context, why you're entitled to be a superstar or what makes you think you're entitled to be a superstar. And I and all I can come back to is that it's just a phenomenon of the last maybe 70, 80 years, you know, the the recorded music business. But before that, if you if you were passionate about any art form, including music, you would just do it. And you might have another job that paid the bills, or you might be a street performer and be itinerant, but nothing was going to stop you from picking up your lute <laughs> your or your lyre or whatever it was and, and playing, because that's what you needed and wanted to do. And how that got conflated with an entitlement to a way of life, I think that's really distorted young people's perception, it's distorted the audience's perception, and it's wreaked havoc on the business, the, the unsustainability of even some of the largest businesses in the music business who are so obsessed with, you know, being platforms to transfer money to artists. It's fascinating. And I think, you know, it's one of those areas that are, it's difficult to, um, to have a, a reason to discussion about because the framing today is so much to have this conversation, you have to be pro or anti, and these conversations aren't about pro or anti; they're just about context, yeah, um, and nuance. And and it's you know we're not allowed to have nuanced conversations, I suppose.
1: No, <laughs> That's not what anymore. I'm trying to do here. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. you know, you remember that book, The Long Tail, right? Yeah, uh, it was wrong. <laughs> the internet has, in fact, you know, resulted in far more concentration of engagement around far fewer pieces of content.
0: Well, that's a whole other topic too, right? Anybody with a certain number of years behind them like we have remembers the emergence of these platforms or remembers the emergence of the internet as a platform and how quickly it became corporatized and commercialized. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, those are loaded words, and I don't really say them with much value judgment except to say it happened. They're global media platforms mm-hmm. and global media platforms, you know, by their very nature get consolidated and controlled by yep. um, gatekeepers and industry and all the other things that come along with that. The information revolution happened in lots of different ways, but it didn't happen in terms of uh, leveling the playing field for, to your point earlier, you know, it's easy to, to get a record into Spotify. I think, right. I think the layperson who has no idea finds it, They'd be shocked to know that, like, what you could do through DistroKid or something. Right, like exactly. That. Yeah. I don't think people realize how short the last mile really is to distribution. But good luck getting seen or heard right. for right. somebody to click the play button.
1: Yeah. That's, yeah. I, I'm really fascinated right now with the end of the difference in inventory between uh, UGC platforms and licensed platforms. I worked at Napster, legal Napster. I like to remind everybody when we paid everybody and I ran the music department and, you know, I remember how much music was available at the time. I think it was about 5 million tracks. You know, we were on par with everybody else. I hated when it first launched CD babies service or whoever was the first place, which it was basically a DIY upload service into my channel. I hated it because uh, we were already dealing with a lot of inventory, trying to make sure our customers are hearing the music they wanted. You know, I figured if you want, if they wanted to go listen to unsigned people, they could go on YouTube. I, and and again, my th- my thinking at the time was old fuddy duddy thinking. I, I get it now, but at the same time, because you can effectively upload anything through DistroKid, what's really the difference between inventory experiences of SoundCloud or Spotify? I mean, I know the difference. You know down deep is because SoundCloud has the ability to be working with derivative works and, you know, it's more friction free. I can upload something. I, I could sing right now and we could upload it and see some metrics tonight, which is different than the few weeks it would take to get my record onto Apple. But I'm really seeing a disintegration of those, those big differences. I feel like now. And what's the implica- what are some of the implications of that? It's going to change the way content can be monetized for sure. I think we're seeing different cohorts gravitate to different platforms because of accessibility and uh, level of affluence. You know, I think there's a reason um, hip hop has gravitated so quickly to SoundCloud, not the least of which is people under 16 don't have credit cards, you know, so SoundCloud is, you know, the place to be. It seems like their friends are there. I don't know what the outcome of this is, but for years, I liked there being a difference between the record store and that other pile of stuff. I mean, there's just no such thing as an unsigned band anymore. It's, it's you either either have a recording or not.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: that's fascinating.
0: What's your, feel as, as somebody who's been an observer and sort of participant and innovator in the space, what are your thoughts on the current state of like product differentiation between uh, streaming services or at least Western streaming services?
1: Right. I, I think that I don't really believe that, People care about the product differentiation between the major streaming services. I think they care what they got the best deal on, on their way in, and what's convenient on their device. Uh, You know, if you signed up for Tidal three years ago and you like it, it's inconvenient to change, even though it's an app you've got to install, you know. Uh, So I've believed for a long time, I don't actually think when people pay for streaming services, they're paying for music uh, the music's everywhere. I think they're paying for, uh, convenience and there's a varying kinds of conveniences available. Uh, one is that your whole music collection is right there. You can listen to things anytime you want, you know, a little bit deeper might be the convenience of, uh, sharing a link with your, your friends because they're also on that platform and you want to share a link and talk about the same song. But people are paying for convenience, not the actual content. That's disappointing. That's why there's so little revenue being driven back towards the talent. Uh, But I've believed for a long time it's context and convenience. And so context is something that they're both very similar. I mean, you know, I I was at Music Now 20-some years ago. We were the first all-major-label-licensed subscription service for music. We made playlists at that time, and we had radio programming at that time. None of that has really changed. The inventory's gotten better, but context has changed. Like the deal, some I think Apple did a deal with who sampled, you know, and it generates these cool sampled playlists. That's context, you know. Stories. Spot, uh, Spotify is you know getting ready to do these stories things with songs, which are a little bit different than, than playlists. That provides context. Uh, I think both of them license the Billboard charts so you can go listen to that context. Uh, So I don't think there's much more room for all-you-can-eat, you you know, uh, services. I think that's done, just like I I wouldn't start a Google competitor tomorrow either. But it turns out that TikTok is a streaming service. And uh, if we include that in the U.S. stuff, because it's certainly taken out, it's a kind of streaming service. So I'm looking forward to more unique experiences with music that aren't necessarily about make sure all music is there, but the, the, you know, but unique experiences with it. Uh, the fact of the matter is TikTok will get deals done soon so that you can search for it and find just about anything and you know, maybe they'll start charging. I don't know how that's gonna work, but TikTok was sort of an audio first video selfie experience. So I look forward to more new things like that but the industry has missed the mark multiple times on the level to which people want to interactively engage with music. And I'm one of those people. I, you know, I had us build the, the STEM store at Bport when I was there. You know, STEMs being for folks who might not know, you get one audio recording that's the bass, one that's the vocals, one that's the drums, and you know, you can play with those things separately. Lots of people have spent a lot of time and money believing that users are gonna want to do that. Uh, it turns out the only way they wanted to do it was in Guitar Hero and Rock Band 10 years ago. Maybe they'll want to do something similar again. But I, the thing that really excited me about TikTok was they really invented a new way for people to play with music. Mm-hmm. And I think the people who can invent new ways to play with music are uh, going to win. It's not about customizing music, which I think some of us thought it might be. Uh, at one point, it's not about making your own version. It's about playing with it, and I and I, I think we'll see more services like that coming.
0: Something that strikes me about that is that you're not you're not dogmatic or precious about a music first experience. Or said differently, like there's no, there's not there's not a puritanical notion of like it has to be about music or it has to be solely about music. It seems to be more about entertainment and yeah experience
1: yeah i mean well part of it is i'm getting older you know on now.tv is the furthest away i've been from the music business in a long time because it's not only about music you know we're featuring comedy and health and wellness and so forth uh certainly as you get older there's you discover less new music you know you go <laughs> out less uh it's still fun to listen to my favorite uh record from three years ago you know over and over again um But I'm also really focused on uh, musician. How do musicians want people to experience their music? And you you can see with TikTok that is being embraced by contemporary musicians. So it's okay with me. So I'm not precious of it. I learned, I grew up working in a record store in middle school and high school. And I learned then that it doesn't matter if I like it. I'm here to help that person find the record they want. And then my, my worldview expanded even further at Beatport because, none of, and I'm a house music guy, but none of my favorite house records were ever going to be top tens on Beatport. This was the EDM moment. And I remember half jokingly telling people at work all the time, you know what the best record of the week is? The number one record. And not because it was making us rich, but because it meant that it was the record that most people wanted. And, and as I think I get older and more experienced every time, I become less and less precious about how I think things are supposed to be and more willing to listen to how other people want to experience things. But also for me, as long as a musician wants it experienced that way, then that's also good enough for me.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think that that's I, – I, I like that. That's a really beautiful sentiment and uh,
1: ethos, and uh, I, I appreciate that. I, I um, tell people all the time that, like, most – In music, and I think this is something that's wrong with the streaming services, actually, they've gotten better at it, is they're all run by music nerds, right? Us included. They're written, you know, we're all record nerds, right? So we think that whenever you're going to play music, you want to hear something new. And mathematically, nothing could be further from the truth. Mathematically, (laughs) anytime someone wants to listen to a song, 99% of the time, they're going to want to listen to a song they've heard before. Think of the pile of CDs, you know, you had your collection, and then you had a pile on top of the player that was sort of your current stack, right? And mathematically, you were more likely to play from that current stack. So filling the front door of a streaming service of recommendations of things you've never heard before is, it goes into, it's a direct contradiction to how people actually behave. I think Apple in particular has gotten better with this. It's more the front page is about 50% reminding me of stuff uh, that I have listened to, and, and very little focus on what's, what have I never experienced before. Um, uh, I think that's a, a mistake a lot of the services make when they launch. And one of the reasons I like TikTok, and I'm not precious about it, is because it's the opposite. It's completely non-music, non-record people who thought this might be a fun thing to do, you know, adjacent to music. Yeah, which by definition just grows the pie for music. Hopefully, I mean, I'm not a fan of all these tech companies effectively, knowingly stealing from artists as a way to scale and then sorting it out later. That's what everybody does. And uh, it hurts the talent. Absolutely hurts the talent.
0: Yeah, that's been, that's a legacy of
1: of the last 20, 25 years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's frankly, it's the Napster way. It's the way Uber and Airbnb scaled globally. They just ignored local laws and sorted it out later. It's, it's become the way.
0: Yeah, YouTube, exactly. MySpace. Yeah, all yeah. the all the big brands started yeah. with this rogue yeah. point of view. Yeah. Uh, yeah,
1: And, you know, it's harder to start a company with that rogue point of view in the U.S. as it should be. And that's why we're seeing these new previously rogue hits come from places in Asia where we've had a difficult time enforcing copyrights. That's right.
0: Okay, you you know. couldn't
1: start. Remember, musically, which I think eventually became TikTok and Byte Dance. Like you couldn't start something like that in Los Angeles anymore. You know, the people who work at Universal would come to your house and beat you up. Uh, <laughs> but you do it in Hong Kong quietly. You know, for two years until you're ready to, you know, debut. Yeah, I think that's a
0: strong point. It's a strong point. Um, we're nearing the end of our hour together. Um, Yay! Thank you so much for making time it's great to talk to you
1: it's great to talk to you i'm sorry i veered a little bit uh, off subject uh you know i am really here to promote onnow.tv god damn it
0: <laughs> that's okay you know i think we i think we i think we honored uh on now yeah, and good. we make sure we do that in the uh, episode notes so we will we will fully uh we will fully right any wrongs that you and i committed as re- in regards to to that but um, no, I, I, I appreciate being able to have a multitude of conversations. Uh, that's what I'm trying to do here. And um, it's, it's a time where um, it's, it's hard to know where the boundaries are, so why not push them a little? Thank you so much, Matt Adele. Thanks to Aunt Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit us at lyte.com. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else with a podcast button. Spotlight On is produced and edited by Craig Snyder. Please keep your feedback coming. Reach me directly at lp at light.com. Thank you for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. I don't